Hey everybody, I just want to give you a heads up that it might seem like I did many lines of cocaine before I started my conversation with this episode's guest. I didn't do cocaine. I felt like I was on cocaine. I just want to be clear. Enjoy this new episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. Who's all? Welcome to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast, everybody, your creatively conscious mortality podcast. This is your creatively conscious mortality host, Ned Buskirk. You know what? This episode, like you might have picked up on already, it's like frenetic. I will say repeatedly, I mentioned cocaine twice in this whole episode, um, I am out of control talking with Sophie Strand. And so I'm not going to add more of that wild out of controlness of you to get through in my intro right now. I just kind of want to let you get to the conversation. So um, to match how much is ahead in the episode, I'm going to make the intro very simple. But I want to say this much, which will likely end up being 15 minutes of an intro. (laughs) It always happens. No, but really, I am humbled by the women in my life with their intelligence, their wisdom, their experience, what they've survived, how they thrive, what they understand. I include my wife and partner in that. But there is a long list of women that I feel like I'm better in the world because of. And I'm going to just right now end that by saying Sophie Strand is the new woman added to that list. I was so humbled by her intelligence, how well she speaks it, how inspiring and impossible it feels like to ever talk like that in my own life. So changed by all the ways that she is, even in the little time that I've known her. I cannot wait for more, but for now, let's just get you this episode in your ears. Sophie Strand is a writer based in the Hudson Valley, New York, who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. Her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, was published in November 2022. Her eco-feminist historical fiction, Reimagining of the Gospels, The Madonna Secret, comes out in spring 2023. I sincerely hope your head doesn't explode listening to this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Sophie Strand. Thank you so much for sharing Um, and for the work that you do, because it feels like (laughs) the most necessary work right now, especially as we are navigating the fact that so many people have died so quickly and there's been no cultural or political reckoning or grieving or processing. Um, while you were talking, I was just thinking of one of my close, close friends who is a death doula and who has also had, you know, some of her closest family members and friends die. And she, you know, really went through that process with them 
in in a way that it sounds like you probably did with your mom mm-hmm. over a long, really sober, intense period of time. And when we first met each other, you know, we were in a room having kind of, you know, superficial chat. And then she started to talk about, you know, her mom not being able to feed herself and the feeding tube and the infections. And suddenly I knew that I wasn't alone. I was with someone who could talk with me about the things that I'm actually thinking about. Mm-hmm. And from there on out, we started to talk about, you go to a party and you start talking about the feeding tube and you can really easily weed out <laughs> who's going to be able to totally. go there with you. <laughs> totally. So it's become a kind of shorthand for us about like the feeding tube. We're like, are they able to talk about that? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think that when you've been through, you know, I, I, I'll never forget, I had a therapist and I remember at one point she stopped and she says, you know, an inordinate amount of people, you know, have died. <laughs> and mm. I was like, well, everybody knows death, but it does they happen. Call, the, the therapist called that out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I was thinking that part of the reason I think I am, I've been put into such an intense, I don't think I would have be as serious a person as I am now if I hadn't lost so many people and had mm. them in me and felt their urgency and their lives in me. (laughs) Um, And I think that these crucial deaths acted like um, engines in me, you Mm. know, Mm -hmm. taking away the superficial dominant culture that tries to ignore that decay and death are an intimate part of food webs in every healthy ecosystem. And I think, but it's also, and I I guess I'm I'm wondering what your experience of this, like, it also can make you feel like an exile and like an alien. You walk into a party and you walk in there and you know, (laughs) you know that that we're all going to die and that you've been there and you've lost people. And then there are people who are like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It can be a very (laughs) weird experience. Oh my gosh, Sophie. Okay. Um, Thank you so much for all that. Uh, I think you, I know that we're kind of connected on social media, which is great. Great. And yeah. uh, I, it is sort of my first knowing of you. Um, but I think maybe you saw recently, I, I made a little real meme video of uh, these two kids like doing this wild dance together. I sent it to time. my friend with the feeding tube. <laughs> and I said, this is us. <laughs> exactly. I, I knew it. I was like, her. that's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, and I feel that way. And I, I want to acknowledge a couple things that you shared. Uh, first of all, I don't think everybody's made or placed into a, uh, and by the way, love the dog barking. Yeah. So it's just going to be part of the experience. Yes, yeah. <laughs> what, what should we name? What's the dog? What's your the, dog? The, the, the dog's name is Baba Ganoush and he's definitely a reincarnated version of one of my ancestors because yes. he's here to egg me on. <laughs> yes, he is cheering you on. Um, yeah. and I, and I just also want to just quickly, okay, a couple things I'm going to keep hold on to all this stuff. I want to acknowledge you and, and Baba Ganoush, whatever you, you've kind I've been dealing with this week health wise and all that. Um, I hope y'all are okay and, and, and feeling good today. And like I said, in my last email, I hope this conversation like gives you both a little yummy medicine and, and like healing and whatever you need. Um, but, uh, I want to touch on a couple things that you said. One is that I talk a lot about how you're going to die is like saying the feeding tube, you know, it's, it's that tester yeah. for people, <laughs> even like a ticket purchase or a, someone sends the podcast out. I think immediately it's, it's making a request and clearing the field right between yeah. it and the person. Are you going to do this? Can you, do you want to, are you compelled to have this kind of conversation? And, uh, if people have often asked why name it something like that, something so confronting and jarring and intense, but, but, 
recently in a, in a, another conversation for the podcast, I, it, the person helped me realize it's a, it's, there's like a kindness to it, you know, it's direct and, and certainly comes from the most tender, soft part of my, my heart and my lived experience. Um, but it, it's a, it is a more gentle request, a version of, of something that maybe usually in our culture is like considered a death threat. Um, but it, more of it, it, more now I think of it as like a soft invitation. And I want to just say that you, defined maybe versions of who we are as people that have lived through so much loss. And so then have like a seriousness. And I hope also you could relate to like a joyfulness too. Oh yeah. Um, you know, Bla that. Blake writes excess of grief laughs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the medicine for right yes. now is like when you really feel the seriousness of the situation, ecologically, culturally, when you feel your own mortality, your own dependence on other beings, when you feel that you will laugh. Because you will see that the, the it, all we have time for is community and love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't have time for any other silliness. That's right. Baba Ganoush is like, absolutely yeah. double absolutely. bark. Absolutely, yeah. Underline that. <laughs> uh, the other thing I want to say is that I know a lot of people that have lived through a lot of, of loss and, and for whatever reason aren't made uh, in a way to maybe be that balance of serious and joy or serious and laughter. And, and so I, it's a way of acknowledging you for being someone who could to live through all that and end up as that kind of person influence in that particular way. Cause I really actually understand more the inclination for a person to kind of numb out and really want to turn that stuff off and not deal with it. I, I even respect it. Um, how, however oh, yeah, much sure. I'm like, we have to lean in, you know, it, it matters. We need to, I know it's hard, you know? Yeah, we all have different responsibilities at different times. And as someone who has had to depend on, quote unquote, problematic survival mechanisms to survive certain experiences like Jesus Christ, yeah, have your survival mechanism. If you mm -hmm. want to survive this moment, do it in the best way you can. Yeah, you're <laughs> um, right. I and I think right that. now there's such a, you know, capitalistic conflation of, you know, wholeness and health that, you know, we, we have to like fix all of our coping mechanisms. We have to stop all our survival mechanisms. But the truth is the culture is broken. We need to hobble as best we can. Sometimes mm. that means, you know, disassociation in many other cultures was closer to trance, was closer to some kind of, you know, interaction with the more than human world. That there are a lot of ways that we numb out inside our culture that in, in a different context would mean something much more um, helpful and potent. Mm, I so appreciate that. I feel like so much of your book uh, that I do want to make a little time to connect here. Um, it, so much of the book is this acknowledgement of some version of the hobbling that, that we maybe deserve isn't the right word, but need to just make room for a slowing down of time, um, a, a trust in how slowly healing can be yeah. and also change and transformation can take. Oh yeah. The dragonfly metaphor is my favorite. Like we're so yes. stuck with the butterfly, which that. is this like very hero's journey experience. You know, you go in and out of the cocoon, you're beautiful. But the truth is that healing or... <laughs> 
healing or integrating or whatever word we want to use is much closer to like the dragon dragonfly pupa, which sheds its skin repeatedly like 15 times. It can take up to a year to do, you know, mm. there's, there's no easy transformative liminal space that then, then is completed. It's this constant shedding of skin and vulnerability. And then even when that happens, you have to climb up on this grass stalk and expose your wet body and wait for your wings to dry. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, real transformation, real alchemizing of trauma and hardship and violence and grief is a slow, sticky process. Okay, Mm -hmm. Baba. Yeah, you have a lot to say about that. (laughs) Wow, he's usually quiet when I do interviews, but he's really, he's on one today. I think it's because he's been sick. I'll I'll also add, I have an experience. I think you are friends with uh, Elfie Pepper, Olivia Pepper. um, Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, recently. Via social media, but like, what what great medicine have they offered? Yes. Yes, for sure. You too. But um, recently I was in a space with her online and, and, and doing one of these Zoom online open mics that we started doing during the pandemic and her kitty cat climbed into her lap. And, uh, that was this moment of, uh, similarly the animal feeling something true about a conversation like this and wanting to be involved in, in maybe in a way that usually never happens. So just wanting to name the Baba well, I love that too, because I also think that we, we live in this anthropocentric world, but our world is built by otherness, by the mm-hmm. decay and breakdown of other bodies. You know, we are interspecies beings that are very bacterial core. Mm-hmm. You know, we are the product of this ancient bacterial merger where two bacteria half digested each other and relinquished their old forms. You know, yeah. what are risky risky experience that must have been and so i think that it's important that we have these you know interspecies interjections that we complicate the sterility of the fictional anthropocentric realm you are so good at that invitation throughout the book i'll be thinking of everything you're sharing say just a chapter uh i'll be reading in it and applying it to my human life and my human relationships and my community and then suddenly i'll realize the invitation is in a question specifically talking about uh I, I guess maybe one of the thing one of the terms you use is is it animate everything the animate that, everything yeah and, yeah and this moment of the blur suddenly is that i the stories i should be receiving that i'm that i'm hearing you ask me to like make room for is not stories necessarily of my human counterparts but of the tree outside yeah, you know, we, we've gotten so focused on human literacy that we've forgotten that real literacy is being able to read the wind through the leaves, the phenological cascades of different animals, you know, the river currents, the, the, the moonlight, and that real literacy is about ecological embeddedness, not being able to read like these weird human ciphers on a page. And so I'm always trying to, you know, use the page as like a Trojan horse to get you looking at your ecosystem. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Uh, I want to go back to a version of that and an access point to another part of the conversation yeah. I want to have with you. I, the the dragonfly as uh, well, the butterfly is the hero's journey and the dragonfly is let's just say for the purposes of our conversation, it's Sophie Strand's like <laughs> insect. 
the and constant <laughs> molting, the, the the indefinite molting. I also love that dragonflies don't have a definite number of molting. It's not like they've reached like number 12 oh. and they're like, that's finished. Like sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 15. Oh, you don't know. Yeah, so much better. Uh, so many, so much more easily applicable to my experience. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I want, this is what I want to connect to. There is this like, okay, hero's journey. This is what I feel. And then we can sort of launch from there. Yeah. I know you, I know your work is built on sort of the lineage uh, Joseph Campbell is a part of and his work. And so it's like, I can read, I think both the respect and certainly influence and the, okay, what do we need to put to rest? Or what do we need to, I guess the bet, maybe the bet to quote you talking about there are no monsters, only bad rewrites of forgotten stories. This idea that part of our work here is taking the old myths and reclaiming them to make them current. Because one of the questions you ask is, is the hero's journey not uh, big enough for this current moment? And so I, I, I know that's kind of a big, can you speak to that? But I really am feeling that coming out of the book. And I know you're already touching on it a little bit here. Well, there's so many entry points into that. I mean, the one, the one, most important entry point is that for 99% of human history, we have um, transmitted our knowledge orally, that all knowledge was nested in compelling narratives, you know, your best farming practices, best foraging practices, best, you know, communal practices, that, you know, it's much easier to remember a compelling narrative than it is a list of, you know, ways, ways. And then in fact, you could offload your memory into the landscape so that you would remember things as you moved across your ecosystems, that there was a, there was a real interplay between land and memory, that memory existed in land and it existed existed in relationships. And in oral cultures, all of your knowledge is, is relational and transient. One, you know, when you're speaking, one syllable has to decay, has to die to make room for the next. <laughs> and, mm. you know, you have to intake breath. You have to intake the microbiome, the pheromones, the funk, the otherness of an ecosystem, and then give it back. And because oral culture um, depends on this constant reiteration and resurrection of old materials. There's also adaption that happens that, you know, every time you tell it, you tell it to a specific political, anthropological, ecological, um, context, you know, you're always freshly adapting it. You're bringing back old characters, but you're stitching them together. Yes. And the idea of the rhapsode, the bard, um, in ancient traditions was not someone, there's actually a really big misconception was that these bards memorized everything, but they've actually in, in oral cultures that still exist today, there's been studies done that show that even, uh, like bards that think that they have memorized everything. It's not about memorization. It's about having certain epithets and ideas that then you stitch together. So mm. rhapsode meant to stitch together, <laughs> to take yes. all these old dead parts and then infuse them with your literal breath and change them. And so I think the hero's journey is a kind of product of linear thinking and chirographic textual thinking. When we write things down, suddenly they can become attached to only one author and they don't shift. They don't adapt. They're not responsive. You can't ask an author on the page what they meant. Mm -hmm. And the author isn't um, responsible to a community, you know, suddenly everything becomes a whole new level of abstraction becomes possible. Mm. And, and also your, your text dies, but doesn't die in a way that is woven into the, the cycle of decay and regrowth. <laughs> it's not yeah. a seasonal death. It's a static growth. It's like this, the stopping moving. 
And um, so I think of the hero's journey as being a real artifact of that type of thinking. That being said, I really love Joseph Campbell and I have to give him I know. the benefit of the doubt that, you know, he was the type of curious thinker that I think if he'd lived a lot longer, he would have kept reading and kept thinking and probably would have developed new thoughts. Mm-hmm. So I, in no way, I, he's an ancestor of mine. I've read everything yeah. he ever wrote. I learned so much from him. I can't <laughs> I even can say, <laughs> yes. um, but I also think that the hero's journey is maybe not biodiverse enough. You know, I, one monocrops are much more um, susceptible to pathogens and to climatological disruptions, that ecosystems are resilient in as much as they are biodiverse, as they have many different voices, many different connective nodes. Mm. So I think the same should be true of our mythological and our narrative consciousness, that if we rely on one story, if that one story gets undermined, then we're really fucked. I hope it's okay to curse. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) On the curse. Yeah. Um, Great. Okay. Uh, focusing on the storyteller. I know the storyteller is not your like, let's replace the hor- a hero's journey with the storyteller. In fact, I think maybe the storyteller and definitely correct me if I'm wrong. And, and I know you will. Uh, the feeling I'm having is the storyteller is a good maybe replacement or option now in these times, because the storyteller asked for many stories. It's like getting the stack of the tarot cards you offer us in your book um, and offer the masculine specifically, knowing that each story will come in handy at some point, like these many identities that we can be and maybe can integrate and choose from. And so that there's work that I really resonate with. And this was one of those moments when I'm like, oh, great. Sophie's talking about being with community and listening to stories. And then I was like, oh, shit, I need to go outside and sit (laughs) in nature. But you said we must turn to each other, arms open ears pricked and ask with complete rapt attention what troubles you and and that like lands right in the center of my my well that's what you're doing that's what you're actually doing and and Mm. and yeah we need we need to stop accelerating through the trouble we need to stay with the the friction and the discomfort and help Mm -hmm. each other actually go through those different pupil molting dragonfly stages Mm. um that we're not going to be able you know i think we're so we move really fast in this culture and our solutionism, even our climate activism, rearticulates the same problems when we move too fast. So the best thing we can really do is, you know, Biocomalafe is one of my, you know, interlocutors and, and favorite thinkers says, you know, the, the times are urgent. We must slow down. <laughs> I think that's one of the most important things we can really hold on to. Um yeah. But yeah, to go back to the idea of the storyteller, it's not even the storyteller. I say that all intelligence is interstitial. Communal acts of storytelling, communal acts of sharing food, sharing stories. Can we create spaces where we can talk about really hard things? Where we can, you know, my mom um, does a lot of work with ancestor practice um, in a kind of more than human deep time way. And she oftentimes says that, you know, three generations forward from your death, all that's going to be remembered of you is one line, one story. What story do you want to leave behind? So I also think that's an incredible question, which is like, you know, if you only have one story from your life, one episode that gets attached to your name and your ancestors down the line, what will it be? But do you have that answer yet? Well, I want to know yours. Do oh, I have my answer? God, uh, I, I, I could kind of try. Could, yeah, well, can you try? Try, yeah. You know, I feel like, especially visibly, this is in fairness to the community that maybe knows me most intimately, 
that someday if my kids ever heard this, they'd be like, oh, is that the story you want to, to, to like be known by? And that they have so many other stories that like really reveal the, the dynamic complexity of who, who I am. Right. But, and, and I know I'm, I'm stepping into something that maybe like is the first guess at this answer. And I have so much like learning and listening and silence to be in to ever get to like what it really is by the end of my life. But it does connect to having this kind of conversation. It is like there is something about that quote I read that is this like the episode of my life that maybe repeats itself is the the um, the being in listening and receiving stories to forever learn, forever change, forever transform, forever moving away from like some singular identity. Um, but in, I guess, a version of the dying over and over again through that receiving of stories and listening. Um, and you'd be like, you totally missed the point. That's not exactly what we're going for with this episodic like representation of who we are. But that's kind of where I'm inclined. It's like, why do I keep coming back to this? Why am I like frenetic? Like just even listening to you, I can't, I'm like, I feel like I just did a line of cocaine or something. You know, I'm just like, ah, <laughs> oh, this is it. This is where I want to be. This is this is everything, you know? Yeah. And I also think, you know, when, when you really acknowledge your mortality, when you really realize that everything you do is an emergency and not an emergency in that you must move fast, but that it must come from your deepest core, that it must be the thing that is most important to you. When you really tap into that, you kind of step into a bardo or liminal realm that I've oftentimes been thinking about um, in terms of hermit crabs. Do you know about vacancy chains with hermit crabs? Tell me. So my favorite, maybe this is the episode I would leave behind. Okay, not my story, but this amazing, you know, ecological parable. So hermit crabs don't make their own shells. They steal them or they borrow them, you know, from the outside ocean. And, but they outgrow them. So when they outgrow their shell, they usually find another shell that's not exactly the right size. Hmm. So what they do is they exit their shell and wait next to the other shell that's also not the correct size. So they expose themselves. Hmm. They don't take the next option, even if it's kind of close. They stay outside of their shells and they wait. And they can wait hours and slowly what tends to happen is more hermit crabs will come. And then at a certain point, they'll perform this amazing ritual called a vacancy chain where they will all exchange shells. And every, every hermit crab will get the shell that fits the right hermit crab. And I was thinking that, you know, we're all stuck inside stories that we didn't write, that we were born into, stories of gender, stories of oppression, stories of racism, right. that we're trying to extricate ourselves from, even, even though they have actually limited what is possible, what bodies, you know, the exposome that certain people from certain, certain backgrounds are exposed to, like they've limited our actual genetic expression. So we're, we're limited by stories that we didn't write. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to create a ritual space where we can vacancy chain together, where we can step out of our shells and we can wait before stepping into the next story? We don't have to ex accept an option that's not a good fit just because we're scared. We can hold each other in that liminality and then all begin to mutually help tell each other into more nourishing stories. Hey everybody, it's the usual help in the middle of our episode. Yeah, we couldn't do this without you. 
big shout out to all of you for listening, for helping us grow our show, sharing the episodes, rating and reviewing, especially those of you who are patrons on our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash YG2D. We are infinitely grateful. And so this is just another one of those moments to say both we can't do it without you and really kind of we can't keep doing it without you. So if you haven't been able to do any number of the things I've just listed, even just one of them, please take a moment now to do so. Especially helpful is bumping up our numbers in the ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts and Spotify, especially. So if you're listening on either of those apps right now, as I kind of change the tone and lower my voice and slow down a little bit, I'm hoping you are startled into presence of being and your own power to support things in the world being better and bigger and connected to more people. Right now, you hold that power. You wield that power. And so I want to make a moment here in the middle of this episode to give you a chance and maybe a little extra 20 or 30 seconds of Nick Jana's wonderful music to hold you while you go and do any number of those things. If this episode is hitting you right in the center of the chest, well, don't you think it's good probably to send it to someone else who might feel the same way if you haven't yet rated and reviewed the podcast in general in your podcast app now's your chance and if you want to become a patron for as little as one dollar a month you can go into the show notes find the link patreon.com forward slash yg2d and please we'd love your support there too But as always, more than anything, and this is not a like, don't worry about it if you just like listening and that's enough. No, I mean, we definitely need your support in other ways. But also, we definitely wouldn't be doing this without you just listening like your little mortal ears are right now. Thank you so much for being here and letting us be in your ear. The book we talk about in this episode with Sophie Strand is her new book, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. And I can't recommend it enough for obvious reasons proven best by my emotional output that you're listening to (laughs) in this episode. I will definitely give you the link to get this book in the show notes. During my conversation with Sophie, I don't know if I planned on this or not. Right now, remembering back, it was just suddenly something I needed personally. I asked Sophie if she wouldn't mind reading a benediction that she's written and included at the end of her book. And so she did. And we want to share it with you here now, Scored with Music by Nick Jana. A final benediction.
May the moon blend us in the bowl of bothness. May we compost our heartbreak, mulch our wounds, pour water into the dry cracks of dead soil. May our wands turn into snakes, our snakes to wands, our swords to flowers. May our pleasure be as intelligent and revolutionary as ivy digesting a building. May we find rainwater fermented mead in beehives. Gods surfacing, mushroom headed from the mycelial underworld. May we approach mountains as our lovers, landscapes as our own bodies. May we honor the porousness of our bodies, selves, souls, breath, the place where our roots fuse into other roots. The beings that constitute our song, the larger song we sparkle in as one small star in a constellation. May our time be as slow as bluestone as quick as a hummingbird heart. As sweet as nectar. As thick as pollen. As light as a spore on the wind. May we fill the space left behind by blight, by extinction, by harm, with song. May we heal each other. May we ask each being for its story. say the spark notes version of my trauma olympics um no <laughs> um oh, i was yes. i was born to very loving parents but then through no fault of anyone was well not not in my family was subjected to some of the worst violent abuse imaginable i would say and then i don't talk about publicly but it was pretty i oftentimes say like i saw hell really quickly like i was mm. born I smiled and then I saw hell. <laughs> like mm. and 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 I think that I was inoculated against it. Not inoculated, but I but I saw it fully before I developed language, you know, before I had words, I knew what what real intense violence looked like that didn't fit into an, you know, our narrow human dualisms of good and bad. Like it totally exploded our morality. Like our morality was not robust enough for what I saw. <laughs> and I, I, and so that was the, the kind of bedrock of my existence. Mm. Um, but then I was raised after that experience by a family that was interfaith, that had to be rehabilitated wild animals. We grew up in the woods. I spent all my time in the dirt with the fungi and the bacteria and the worms. 
And so, you know, a lot of healthy compost heaps, some really bad stuff, some really good stuff, all mixing together to produce really interesting soil. Mm. Um, when I was 16, though, I developed a very life-threatening illness that was not easily diagnosed. <laughs> it was really, really bad and also really tricky to diagnose. And so I got sicker and sicker and sicker and went in and out of what I call bottleneck events where it would look like I was going to die. Mm-hmm. And those events, you know, ex- bottlenecks in biological time are actually like extinction events where most species are killed off and the few that remain diversify and repopulate the world. So, you know, I sometimes say that we're not children of Eden. We're not children of the garden. We're children of the crater, the Chicxulub crater in the extinction event that killed off most life mm-hmm. and that let the mammals left behind diversify into human forms that in a certain way we are produced by the space left behind by extinction. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Yeah, so I, I didn't get, I, I didn't get the diagnosis and, and the diagnosis was, was, was deferred. And I kept having these bottleneck events and each bottleneck event served to winnow out my superficial concerns. So I think I would be a very different person if I hadn't experienced these episodes where it really looked like I was going to die. And I, just to be, to connect the, the creator, you know, it's yeah. like, that's the bottleneck moment. You yeah. just had many of those that were yours. These extinction events, but the, yes. the things that went extinct were right. foibles, were ideas that I had limitless time that I could mm. not care about the, the people in my life. And alongside this, I was losing friends and family members to really serious accidents and disease. So I was negotiating the death of people in my life who I loved and also the sense that my own body could be you know, dying very quickly Hmm. and having to figure out how to live with peers who really didn't recognize their own mortality or the mortality of the world and feeling a lot like an exile. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there was a period of my life where I really only felt like I could talk to like really old people who knew what it was like to be really sick and disabled and really negotiating end of life concerns. Um, I did, and this is what brings us back to the Orpheus chapter, which is I did finally, over many, many years and many different diagnoses and, and, and breakdowns, figure out what was wrong with me, which is that I have a genetic condition that is a cat-connected tissue disease that predisposes me to, like, every other disease. <laughs> like, it's like, it's like a, it's a bowl that holds all these other diseases. But at the moment that I found out that I had this connective tissue disease, I had been fascinated and in love with fungi my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I'd become Mm -hmm. fascinated in particular with mycorrhizal fungi, which are the connective tissue of ecosystems in the soil. And so it was a moment where I thought, okay, this disease is incurable in my body, but what if I let myself get leaky? And what if I problematize my idea that healing happens in an individuated self, an atomized self? What if it happens in my web of relationships? What if my healing happens in my relationship to these other beings, to fungi? And so in the chapter in Orpheus, what I'm trying to say is the best art, the best work we can do right now is becoming a mouth for something else, for yes. another species, yes. For, yes. for the species that are going extinct, for the birds that are calling out to mates that will never arrive. Mm. That we can't necessarily save those beings, but we can step into the empty spaces left behind by blight and extinction and begin to sing back. And it's a messy process. We can all begin to help each other create these symbiotic entanglements where we negotiate extinction and pain and solastalgia, which Mm. is one of my favorite terms from um, ecologist Glenn Albrecht, which is you know, the heartbreak for a place for webs of beings that no longer exist because of climate change. 
Mm. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, it, it's ridiculous that we only have an hour, Sophie. I am just <laughs> so well, maybe, maybe happy we'll have and overwhelmed. Other, other <laughs> we conversations. Will, yeah, we will. We will. But I'm just, that's a way of acknowledging how grateful I am. I am like feeling like we're hitting on all the stuff that I want to also. And I could feel that way endlessly. That's the like simultaneous experience I'm having. Well, um, I have a question for you. Do you, please. Is, is there a place, is there a being in your life that you feel that you are wedded to? Like your wounds are the photo negative of its shape. Hmm. And, and, um, yeah. And yours is that fungi. I, yeah, I, I, I really do. I, I mean, I also think it's many other beings, but I do feel very deeply stitched into fungi. Well, and in fact, someone once said like, your last name is strand, like strands, <laughs> oh, like it's yes. in your name. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That is so good. Good call. Um, here's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling heartbroken that I don't have an answer, you know, and it's okay. I'm okay with that. But I think what I really, this is like me pivoting to say both I'm okay with not being clear about this right now and feeling the influence of your book and like deeply emotional, confronting, inviting way where my maybe the best, most, most the near example is the Empress card that you you talk about. You give me the Empress card in your book. And the Empress card for me for the listeners, I'll paraphrase not well, uh, how you, but, but well for me, um, how you write about this. And it is this moment in the book where I cry reading it and I read it, I read from it. I think I told you this, I read from, from this section to, to the group, uh, on this online open mic, but it was me offering them the Empress card, this, your mother, you know, being mother, creating lap, you know, making the space for people to come and be held like I need it. And both because my mom's dead and because when she was alive, she was partly dead, you know, um, maybe even mostly dead. Um, and I want to be fair to her, you know, like I love her so deeply and respect her and what she did to raise me. But there's this invitation with the Empress card that I'm feeling right now in your question, which is the pay attention to something new. Like there's a new answer needed here. And, and I'll leave this conversation thinking about, well, what is that? What is the answer to Sophie's question for me? What a gift to have that new thing to pay attention for. Like you said, to be paying attention in a way that you could, you could hold, uh, and hospice something new. Um, so I don't have an answer and I just pivoted to like acknowledge you for that particular offering now and in the book repeatedly. Oh, well, thank you for not answering also, because like live the question we, you know, mm, I, you know, answers, yes. answers, answers are a kind of ending that, that a question that opens another question keeps everything moving. Mm. Um, and yes, I also I think, that. I think I also want to problematize my own certainty about this. I'm constantly every day I wake up and say, show me who I need to be a mouth for. That's my prayer. Yes. Who do I need to be a mouth for? Like what beings need me to be dialoguing with them, you know, writing about their experience, learning about them, you know, and, and I think this is a constant inquiry that we have to always be asking our ecosystem for updated information mm. on how it wants to be treated and how it wants to work with us. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, you touch on that in that chapter. I don't know why, for some reason, I'm connecting that um, intention with what you said about the need for decay or letting things go into the general aliveness. And so I think in well, a way, I yeah, guess, no, the it, mouth it actually is receiving. Works. Yeah, go because ahead. Because I'm thinking of the Empress card, which is the metaphor I use, and that is the pitcher plant, which right. is some of them are carnivorous, which is that insects and beings fall into them and their digestive juices break them down. But there's a specific type of pitcher plant that only does that when it's new and it's trying to build up its body. And as soon as it becomes mature, it becomes, it creates something called an inquiline community in its own body, where actually the insects and the bacteria and the fungi that come into it create a community inside its body. And the shit and excrement that they produce, their waste, their decay, becomes the thing that nourishes the plant. So the plant, when it's early, is carnivorous. Mm. Like early in its life, it needs to take a lot. But then it becomes a home for all these other beings. And changes and transforms their waste into new life and i was thinking a lot about how can how can we become a place where other beings can come home you know early in life we're, we're still inside the culture we're still taking a lot we're still doing a lot of harm that's just kind of what it's like but can we shift into a new type of embodied maturity where we start to become the place where, where other beings can decay can break down and can sh- break bread yes uh, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about in a way that I think connects and, and you'll help me make that clear. Uh, I, I'm sure is the, am I saying this right? The eucatastrophe? Yeah. Is that a wild Yuka, term? Y- yes. Can eucatastrophe. Can, yes. Can you, does that, is that a fitting thing to, to, to make some room for right yeah. now after what you said? Okay. I mean, I love the eucatastrophe, which was an idea created by Tolkien. And so we have to understand that he did create it with a kind of Christological Christian perspective, but we can liberate it from that um, because Tolkien did have some good parts to him. Um, Mm -hmm. And the idea of it is the good catastrophe, which is when everything seems like it's the worst case scenario, suddenly the golden eagles swoop down and save Frodo and Sam from Mount Doom. But the thing that makes it different from Deus Ex Machina, you know, God from the Machine, or any of these other literary terms is that it's not a supernatural event. It's not like a god ripping the order and coming down to interrupt the way of things. It's always profoundly natural. The eucatastrophe uses the natural elements in life to save you at the last possible moment. Mm. And, you know, Tolkien said it was the joy that is shaped and made precious by sorrow and by the knowledge that it could have been otherwise. That you can't feel the eucatastrophe, you can't feel that absolute miracle unless you've come right to the edge of it having been otherwise. And I think that it's not that we deserve our eucatastrophe right now, but how we how can we be the eucatastrophe for other beings? How can we be that natural element that swoops down and saves? And it doesn't even have to be an entire species. It can be one being. It can be shepherding a, 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 a snapping turtle across the road, stopping right. traffic and shepherding that, that snapping turtle across the road. That I think we have this idea that we have to do these grand gestures, but small gestures matter too. You mm-hmm. don't know what side character you're playing in a deep time story. Mm. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm sorry. I am just, my jaw is just hanging uh, over here, Sophie. This is just the most enjoyable. Um, Thank you for 
totally just falling right into it with with me and 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 being so good with all the stuff I'm throwing at you. It, it all feels connected too, which is wonderful. But I credit you for you for that more than me. Um, I want okay. So first of all, I want to acknowledge that we're about ten minutes, ten fifteen from when you need to bolt for your. Yeah, gathering. I'm good. We we can okay. go right to it. I would love that. Cool. And also, just can I tell you what an honor it is to talk to someone who feels with as much intensity and earnestness, like, gosh, I think earnestness is the most important thing these days. Let's be as like absolutely cringe as possible. Come on. (laughs) I I want to talk from my gooeyest, most radical sober center. Yeah. I just knew it. And I, I, I could feel it before we, we were able to hear each other's voices. So I think I, 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 I will credit and, and, and own like the intuition I have and like your visibility is, is such, right. It's like, I, I could trust that it would be this kind of conversation and that you me too. feeling these ways is welcome <laughs> more than most. I mean, I really feel like out of control, Sophie. I'm just like, <laughs> ah, I'm just like, like just at the seams, you know, like it's all just melting into everything else. So, um, I, Luckily, I have feel like I've touched on almost everything that I really wanted to as far as my notes go. But there is something I wanted to I want to throw a couple things out in our last stretch of time. And you can be like, nope, don't need to make time for that. Yep. Let's go that direction. <laughs> OK. Um, you know, just to kind of follow up to this Tolkien connection to the religious and, and especially Catholicism maybe, um, but like Jesus and Dionysus. And I, and I, um, I want to make time for you maybe don't need to clarify the difference there, but it does connect to the death and dying, the act of like rising and not giving your body to the earth. And I really was drawn to that as Dionysus is, uh, uh, mythological being that gave itself into the earth instead of the other option. And so that's why I was drawn to it. And in so doing, I suddenly realized finishing the book, like this character for you is particularly important and sorry if saying character like diminishes the value of their being in your world. Let's just say this being. Um, so I want to like make room if there's something to articulate with me here now about their being in your life and influence and the ways it connects to this particular conversation we've shared. Well, thank you for inviting in Dionysus. I will say that I, you know, there's certain beings that when you start working with them or patterns, morphic resonance, you know, like fields of behavior, whatever, there are certain beings that when you start working with them, your life really starts to change. Yeah. Um, I will say that, you know, I was very interested in mythic systems in the Mediterranean basin that move from early Paleolithic nature reverent cultures that are nomadic hunter gatherer into the Neolithic bronze age and then into these dominator hierarchies that become calcified as empire how what what you know instigates that shift what happens Mm -hmm. can we trace this anthropologically and can we trace it mythologically so that's what i studied in academia that's what i attempted to address with my historical fiction rewrite of the gospels um but the truth is what i was really really fascinated with is there seems to be a real huge And when I say huge, I mean in terms of geography and also in terms of time, temporally, huge swath of vegetal gods, gods associated with springtime, with fermentation, um, with revelry, with with slaves and with women and revolt against empire and systems of domination um, that spans across the Mediterranean basin. And they all look different depending on where they quote unquote fruit up. But I always say that they're like mushrooms of the same underground mythic mycelium. They all share the same attributes. 
Um, and I, I thought it was really interesting to look at them as being perhaps representative of an earlier, more healthier type of, of, of deity who represented the time of ecosystems that, you know, these gods oftentimes rise up and they create dance, they spread fermentation, they um, give poetry and life, they liberate women, they liberate slaves, but then usually they die and their bodies are mulched, physically mulched back into the places from whence they came. So what they do is they really honor and draw attention to the fact that decay is a crucial part of ecosystems and life that, you know, life is seasonal. It it requires, you know, moments of of the Jubilee years when you let the the land lie fallow. It requires patches of rot that you have to learn how to feed your shit back to the land that fed Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you see this at Osiris, Addis and Adonis, Dionysus. Dionysus is one of the best examples. Orpheus too. Um, But then it's so interesting to me that then someone like Jesus comes along. And what I'm actually going to just distinguish between the historical Jesus and then the yeah. mythical okay. Jesus. Because yeah. the historical Jesus is probably a real radical, social radical, <laughs> doing very particular things. Yeah. But the mythic Jesus becomes, and, and when I say the mythic Jesus, the Jesus that gets co-opted by, by empire, the very empire that killed the wild Jewish storyteller co-ops his story. So mm-hmm. the, the, the being that comes to us by, by game of empire telephone <laughs> um, has, has a lot of the same attributes of these vegetal gods. He's associated with fermentation. Mm-hmm. He's associated with healing, with anti-imperial right. qualities. He has a lot of these, these similar attributes. And yet he doesn't complete that seasonal ecological cycle. Right. When he dies, his body disappears. Mm-hmm. You know, he's resurrected, quote unquote, but he's resurrected in a way that is completely Cartesian. Mind and matter are split. That he kind of really, you know, early Christianity is really just codified Platonism. Um, a lot of people don't realize that Plato has much more to do with Christianity than the historical Jesus. Um, yeah. And that we're really getting the Greek rewrite of this much wilder story. Um, but it seems problematic to me that we have this figure who says you can you can abscond, you can leave the body, and you also yeah. don't have to feed yourself back to the earth. Right. And so I oftentimes say that you know it's these interruptions in cycles of decay and regrowth that create really big problems. And the best real time example is in the Carboniferous period, where there was a massive explosion of woody lignin based um, plants that then would die and there hadn't yet developed. And this is theoretical and there, there are some other competing theories. So I will acknowledge that, but they're the the working theory is that white rot hadn't developed yet. This type of fungi that breaks down this, these really hard cellulose cells hadn't developed. So nothing could decay. Nothing could properly die and feed itself back to the earth. And it created a global cooling event and it killed off many, many other species. And it is this compacted matter that is fueling global warming today. Mm-hmm. So there we see an interruption in a, yes. in a decay process creates lots of um, problems down the line. Oh my gosh. Um, and I want to say the last thing in my notes that feels important to touch on here is that the Jesus, this story, that story, and, and right, not the historical, but the empire, uh, you know, telephone version is, uh, I think for me, uh, a sort of a sidestepping of death too, for us, you know, it's that suddenly, well, then that is the option too, is like us rising up to be with Jesus instead of giving ourselves back into the earth and this, this realm. And, and what it, 
connects to in another part of your book for me is that that line I mentioned earlier about there are no monsters. You said, you know, in these times, maybe now we're considering like weather change, climate change and the weather it produces as a kind of monster. Um, and that part of part of what's needed, right, is the rewrite of these forgotten stories to to actually maybe free them from that monster identity. And so my my question is connected to that in in the wondering of have we made death a monster? Is was that oh, part of what God. You know? yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we can always look to our monsters and our fears and our taboos for information on the cultures that we built our cultures on top of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting that, of course, like Medusa in the Greek pantheon is a monster, but what she really is is a snake goddess that was destroyed by the Greeks that came down and invaded Minoan Crete, you know? Right. And, and that, that a snake earth reverent goddess becomes a monster yes. in, in a dominator culture that needs to justify its own murder of nature and of women and people who are considered other. And so we can always look to our fears and to our monsters for information on what we're not properly integrating um, and what we haven't taken responsibility for. My favorite, I I, I just want to summon, so Dionysus is one of my patron saints and the other one is Santa Muerte, Saint Death. Do you know about Santa Muerte? Uh, Tell me. Santa Morte is this is this um, syncretic um, South American saint, um, Saint Death, and Saint Death was uh, you know I watched an incredible documentary about her practice that's really emerged, which is that you know especially in prisons, Saint Jude is supposed to be the saint you pray to for impossible situations, but oftentimes the saint doesn't work, so you look for a saint that does better. You know, mm-hmm. I love that in in a lot of you know saints um, culture practices, there's this idea that you pray to one saint and if they fail, you go on to the next. <laughs> um, yes. That was true in in, in the medieval um, uh, Christianity as well. That there was this idea, this pantheistic um, belief system that was underneath the, the the very thin overlay of monotheism. That there was a cult of saints and you would go through different saints saints for different problems santa muerte has become one of i think one of the most popular saints in south america today Mm. as being really good at at helping people solve problems that seem unsolvable so so death is, is the problem solver
blessing just to know you. It's a blessing to be known. It's a blessing to be weaving through a masterpiece we can't see. And we're blessed to just be here. We're blessed to just breathe here. We're blessed to just sing here. We're blessed to just be That was Chelsea Coleman's song, Just to Sing Here. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while or you know you're going to die at all, you know Chelsea Coleman is our creative director, among many, many other things. So good to have her song and music in this special episode with Sophie Strand. And thanks to Sophie Strand, I said enough about how much I feel about the conversation we had for this episode Thanks for saying yes, Sophie. Thanks for your work. Thanks for what you've lived through, for still being alive, for doing what you're due after all of that. Um, just feeling grateful for you. And I'm also feeling emotional. Nick Jaina. Hi. Hi. Damn it. This is not the vibe I expected to have for this closing. Um, well, I just, uh, I just was, I definitely am feeling this emotional level. Um, and I don't need to keep like reminding you or the listeners of this about Sophie, but it's connecting now to um, just having literally just left minutes ago um, for Christmas. My daughter got a fish tank and we put it together and we bought a bigger tank because we really want to do it right. And we've been using a fish bowl, which just is, it just did not work for, for the goldfish that we've had. And so we bought a few fish and we got it all set up and it's been a lot of work and effort and a lot of excitement and a lot of beautiful connectedness with my daughter. And then this fish died and it's so, so small, but it feels very big. And I think, you know, she's really upset and handling it really well and made a little grave um, stone for it with a little, some words about this little fish that we've only had for a couple of days. But, you know, it's like I can get to that emotion. You know, the, the default, the risk is that we're like, it's a little fish, you know, like it's a kid, the kid's feeling a lot, but it's my daughter mm -hmm. and she's crying and I don't want to, I don't want to be a, a part of things that hurt her, but that's just what we've agreed to, you know? And I'm just, I know I'm doing everything I can to get this fish tank set up correctly. And I just have this underlying anxiety of, of this eventuality. Like, even if the tank gets set up really well, it's inevitably these fish that we get, you know, they'll die. And, uh, um, 
I, although I'd prefer it happens a lot longer than only a couple of days after we get them, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and so it's very, it's very sad over here. And, um, <laughs> so thank goodness to have a podcast that <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, only makes room for this kind of stuff. Um, I absolutely did not expect to, to get this emotional, but I, I do mean there was a bridge between the emotion I feel about this guest and talking to Sophie and the emotion I'm feeling with my daughter, you know, whose little red blotchy steer tain, stained faces in the other room, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, <sighs> uh, so hard. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> that's our show, everybody. <laughs> Honestly, that is our goddamn show. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't have anything else to say. Uh, I'm I'm leaving it on this note. Um, Can I say like, one there's thing? There's nothing to fix. No, no, no. You missed your chance. No, definitely, of course. It just you weren't, and so then I was like, I don't want to talk either, and so. <laughs> I was, just, I was like, all right, let's call it. But go ahead, of giving course. Giving the space. No. Um, <laughs> if I were going to be a goldfish and I was was put into whatever situation that goldfish get put into, mm. often, you know, let's be honest, like kind of decorative positions rather than like you're a life form that uh, I'm connecting with, you know? Yeah. I'd be super stoked to be in your household <laughs> compared to a lot of other situations and yeah. grateful for, for every day of my goldfish life. <laughs> Even if it's just two, there's no, be no party that'd be like, could I, could you just not, could you have left me back at the shop? Cause things were, <laughs> things were doing fine over there. Um, no, no, I, I, I appreciate that. And it's such a wild and weird thing to make room for stuff like this that has, already culturally built into it like people i can hear them i can hear the voices like it's silly you know you did you had a like you had like a funeral for the fish and we did we like we went out in the back my son my daughter and i you know and my partner's not home so we just made it happen right then and she and and i i it felt all all the meaningfulness of it you know, and the words I said, they all said words, they all thanked the fish. And, you know, my daughter was just crying a lot, but she just expressed gratitude for this little being's life, you know, in our home for a couple of days. And then I said what I feel about all this, which is these losses, this fish bolt, it's like place in our life is an offering for learning how to care for things, Mm -hmm. you know? And I mean that both as I want (laughs) to figure out how to keep fish alive in my house for longer than a week, um, truly, and no joke, like I want to be able to do that. And the general uh, lesson of caring for things and crying and holding each other back there. And I just told them that this little fish, however small 
compared to some of the great losses and struggles we've been through as a family is a chance for us to, to be in life together and learn. And, and I believe that, but I, not, but, and I worry that I'm (laughs) responsible, (laughs) you know? Um, And I'm getting a chance to name that here when they don't, they can't hear me say it, but that's, that's definitely there. You know, it's like I chose to bring a fish and didn't take care of it. Right. And so we have incurred this loss, you know? And so for me, what did you do? (laughs) What what did I do? I don't know. Um, Or what did you not do? Yeah, exactly. That's what it feels like. Um, Wow. Uh, I'm feeling like apolog, like being apologetic, uh, for the listeners, but also I'm, I'm, so it's like, I'm feeling both alike who, who's listening to this and having it mean something to them. And also who's listening to it and being like, are you kidding right now with this fish? Um, what a trippy thing to be in the midst of all that, but I'm really glad I hit record and I really appreciate (laughs) what you said, Nick, and, uh, and feel, feel that, you know, like, if that fish got anything, he got a couple people, at least my daughter and I, especially that cared a lot and wanted it here, you know? And, uh, that's something, isn't it? And how many goldfish are grieved for, you know, mm. how many goldfish are, it's a sword uh, tail, anybody? by the way. Sword tail. Yeah. That's the kind of fish. <laughs> that's the kind of fish it is just to honor it appropriately. Did he, did it, did they have a name? Bolt. Oh, bolt. Okay. Yeah. Bolt the sword tail. Now I want to tell, I want to end on some good news, everybody. And And this is wild. So we got three fish and we can have like eight to 10 in this tank. We got three fish. We got a beta and uh, a male sword tail bolt who died. And then we got a female sword tail Fanta and Fanta is pregnant. And Mm. just as I, we pulled that dead little fish out of the tank. We saw one of the babies. Come on. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. There you go, man. <laughs> Swimming around in there. Oh, come Cir- on. Circle of fucking life. Circle of fucking life. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> I, I hope the next time I'm talking in this damn episode podcast thing that that baby is still alive and the other fish are still alive i can make no promises but right now we're ending on a good note the the balance of life is such that there's at least three fish still living in the little tank in the other room right now thanks for listening everybody (laughs) (laughs) until next time bye nick glub 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 (laughs) 